Hey, church family, wanted to give you a quick update on Citizens Church. As many of you all know, we've been training Tim and Lindsay Olson along with a core team of about 35 Midtown members to plant a church in Charlotte, North Carolina. And first off, we want to say thank you for your faithfulness. It's because of you that Charlotte is blessed with a Jesus-centered family on mission because you all were faithful and committed to pouring into them and sharing your lives with them and showing them what it means to be a church family. And it's because of what we have here in Columbia that moved them to want to start something in Charlotte. And as of a couple weeks ago, your pastors officially sent their team out and prayed over their leadership. And within their first month on the ground, they've already hosted their first gathering with about 80 people in attendance. They already have a couple of small groups regularly meeting in the city, and they have hopes of launching a third small group in the next month. And two reasons why we wanted to keep you on the loop is first to encourage you to continue praying for their church and team, to stay in touch with them, just subscribe to their newsletter on their website and regularly check in on their social media. Second, we wanna thank you for your ongoing financial generosity. Because of your giving, we are able to support church plants like citizens and we're able to train up future church planters so that more and more people would encounter Jesus, be a part of his family and be sent out on mission. You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Eight minutes, 46 seconds. As many of you know, that's how long Minnesota police officers knelt on the neck of an African-American man named George Floyd during an arrest earlier this year that killed him. Video of the incident went public, and it brought back to the forefront of our national consciousness all of the racial problems that exist in our country. Because the sad reality of it is, is that George Floyd is one of many African-American men and women whose lives have been unjustly cut too short. In fact, even now, many of you could rattle off 10 to 20 names off the top of your head of names that have made headlines over the past months and years. And the reality of it is, is each one of these stories fits into a broader history in our country where African-Americans have been treated as less than the image bearers of God that they actually are. And this year specifically, so many people have responded in so many different ways. Across our country, there have been protests and still are protests, some peaceful, some not so peaceful. There have been all kinds of calls for change uh, from ending racism in all of its forms all the way to dismantling the police system in its entirety. And to be honest, it can be a little disorienting for us this year because it seems like everyone with an opinion and a social media account is out there telling us what we should do or what we should not do, what is right, what the real problem is or how we should think, feel, and and respond. It can be a little confusing. All these competing groups telling us what's wrong or what's right, it can make it difficult to know who to trust or what to think. I mean, even now, as I've been prepping for this sermon, I've been thinking kind of in my head about three groups that I know I'm going to be talking to today. And I know it doesn't really cut that clean, but I know that I'm preaching to some of us who kind of 
we swing a little bit to the right or we skew a little bit to the right. And when it comes to issues of race in our country, you think we don't need to be talking about this anymore. We talk about it too much and we don't need to talk about it from the pulpit. Like this isn't a Christian issue. Why are we spending so much time on this? And then I know that we got those of us who skew to the left, who you think we can't talk about it enough and we aren't talking about it enough. And I'm worried for you that maybe you're swallowing some unbiblical worldviews unknowingly like critical theory and other things like that, that just you bring them in because they just sound better to you than the racist stuff that you grew up with or feel surrounded by. But even beyond those two groups of people, I know that there are my black brothers and sisters that I just want to get to look to today and say, you are loved. You are so loved by God and your church stands with you. And, and I want to speak to everyone. I want to speak to all of us. And I want to do it in roughly 30 minutes while I'm looking at a camera. May God have mercy on my soul, right? But it does beg the questions for us. How do Christians think through these things? How do Christians respond to injustice? What does it mean for us to follow Jesus in these moments? And what I hope to do is I hope to get to answer a few of those questions for us today. And to do so, we're going to look at a passage that many of you are probably familiar with. We're going to look at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37 or 39. And it's Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan. So let's read it together. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And this is actually a pretty good question, right? Now, this guy doesn't ask it from a good motive, but it's a good question. He's an expert in the Old Testament law, and he's asking Jesus, Jesus, out of the 600-plus laws contained in the Old Testament, which ones do I actually need to keep in order to inherit eternal life? Or to ask it another way, what do I need to do to experience life in the kingdom of God? And Jesus answers, excuse me, Jesus answers his question with another question that kind of cuts right to the heart of the issue. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Which, this is a brilliant move by Jesus, by the way. This guy comes to test Jesus, and Jesus flips the script and tests him instead. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So these are two commands pulled from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. And Jesus has said elsewhere that the whole Old Testament really hangs on these two commands, that all of the Old Testament laws are really about these two main things. And so he says to him, you have answered correctly. You've answered right. Do this and you will live. Jesus says, yes, you get it. A plus, you pass the test. Just do those things fully and you will inherit eternal life. You will experience life in the kingdom. Love God with every fiber of your being and love your neighbor as yourself and you will be good to go. But that sounded about as audacious to the lawyer as it probably sounds to us. And so it moves on in verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? His correct answer was not enough. Rather, he wanted Jesus to define or to limit exactly who he should love so that he could prove that he has kept the law, that he has done what he's supposed to do. So the lawyer realizes that whether this be consciously or subconsciously, he realizes that the only way he could actually fulfill the law's requirement was to limit its demand, which is what we all try to do, by the way. And to help the lawyer see just how badly he's missing the point, 
Jesus tells him this story that if you grew up in church, you're probably familiar with as well. It says, Jesus replied, a man was going down to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side as well. Now, these first two figures that Jesus introduces us to here are really important. As a Levite and a priest, it would have been understood that these two men are well-versed in the Old Testament law. They served important roles in the religious life of Israel. And more than anyone, they would have known what the lawyer knew, that God's law is about loving God with all your being and loving your neighbor as yourself. And yet, when the rubber meets the road and they see this stranger who's been jumped and left for dead on the side of the road, rather than moving towards him, they ignore him and walk the other way. And I think it bears a bit of teasing out here that it's, it's actually very unlikely that the priest or the Levite did this because they harbored any sort of personal ill will towards the victim. Rather, these men were just indifferent to what was going on. You see, both the Levite and the priest knew that by touching this man, what would happen was, is it would make them ceremonially unclean. And being ceremonially unclean would have prevented them from doing their jobs in the temple, from fulfilling their religious duty. So, I mean, they were just trying to keep their heads down and be about their business. They were trying to keep their heads down, mind their business, and just do a good job at their work. It's very fair to assume that Jesus means for his audience here to understand that both these men simply believed that their work had to come before showing justice and mercy to this man. And you better believe that Jesus is pointing out the irony here that people so dedicated to a system that was meant to facilitate God's goodness in the world could be so blinded by it that they actually missed the point of what it's all about. And this is actually a huge theme throughout all of Jesus' teaching. In fact, just one page over in chapter 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees in verse 42 when he says, Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. He puts those two things together. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. He's saying love, justice, and mercy is what God is actually all about. It's what he's after. It's what his law is all about. And if you think it's more about religious ritual or religious practice than loving God and loving others, then that's an adventure in missing the point. And don't mishear me. He's not saying that those other things don't matter. He's not saying that those other things aren't good. He still says that you should tithe on your spices, which is something very few of us actually have a category for but it's that those things are only there to facilitate the greater thing that God actually wants his people to be about. And so what we have here are these two religious, upstanding, very respectable men in Israel miss it, completely miss it. But they're not the only two characters in the parable. Next, Jesus introduces us to a very unlikely third. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, 
I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer responds, the one who showed him mercy. Now notice here, he doesn't say the Samaritan, and there's a reason for that that we're gonna come to in just a minute. And Jesus says, you go and do likewise. For a devout, religiously conservative Jewish audience, this would have been a real, it would have been a real pearl-clutching moment, if I may. Like, I like to imagine that someone in the audience gasped and fainted when they hear who Jesus makes the hero of this parable. Here's why. Samaritans were hated by the Jews. Samaritans were the ethnic descendants of what we could call the losing side of Israel's civil war, the northern kingdom. They seceded from the southern kingdom and were eventually overthrown by pagan rulers whom they married and had kids and adopted their pagan cultic practices from. And so in the Jewish mind, Samaritans weren't simply foreigners, but they were the offspring of apostates and a people who by their very ethnicity, by their very genetic makeup, were inferior to the Jews. They considered them half-breeds or muggles, if that's your cup of tea. They hated them, absolutely hated them, so much so that it even drove them to uh, racial violence. In Daniel J. Hayes' book, From Every People and Nation, he details an incident that happened in AD 51, where people from a Samaritan village murdered one or more, depending on the sources, uh, Jewish pilgrims who were on their way from Jerusalem or to Jerusalem for the Passover. And in response to this murder, an unruly mob from Jerusalem went down to the Samaritan village, massacred everyone who lived there, and burned the place to the ground in its entirety. For the record, AD 51 would have been right around the time that Luke was compiling this narrative. So to say that the society that Jesus ministered to and preached to was a racialized society would have been a severe understatement. If you were a Jew, you did not associate with Samaritans. You did not eat with a Samaritan. You did not work with a Samaritan. You did not play, marry, or do business with a Samaritan. It was unthinkable. So you can see what Jesus is doing here, right? He is breaking down all kinds of prejudicial walls and barriers. He is challenging negative stereotypes of Samaritans, and he is making the point that loving your neighbor transcends all racial, cultural, economic, religious, and even ideological barriers that we might erect between us. Jesus refused to allow the law expert to limit the implications of this command to love. In no uncertain terms, Jesus is saying, loving your neighbor means being sacrificially involved with those in need, no matter who they are. We instinctively tend to limit those that we will love or exert ourselves for, right? We, we tend to instinctively limit that to people that are, who are like us or people that we like. But Jesus will have absolutely none of that. By depicting the Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say that anyone at all in need, regardless of race or politics or class or religion or whatever, is your neighbor. And while everyone on the road might not be your brother and sister in the faith, everyone is your neighbor and you must love your neighbor. 
And so he says, go and do likewise. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what life in the kingdom looks like. This is what we're called to as followers of Christ. So let's pause here for a moment. And let's just talk about the implications of this for us in our current cultural moment of 2020. I would submit that few, if any, passages in the four Gospels speak to our nation's racial problems as directly as this parable of the Good Samaritan. As Hayes again remarks, he says, the relationship between whites and blacks in America, even within the church, is remarkably similar to that between Jews and Samaritans of the first century. One that has historically been characterized by prejudicial animosity and distrust with clear boundaries delineating them from us. Maybe even a little bit more on the nose. Eight minutes and 46 seconds was how long a man was held down by his neck on the side of one of our roads. And the back-to-back headlines of names over the course of the past several months and years, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Rashad uh, Brooks, remind us that those eight minutes and 46 seconds were reflective of a pain and a problem that is much bigger and much deeper than just those few moments. And what the parable of the Good Samaritan should be doing for us here in this space is destabilizing any sort of us and them worldview in our minds. It should be demolishing any ethnic or socioeconomic or political boundaries we build on who we will love or who we will help or who we will stand beside. It should lead us to pursue love, justice, mercy, and compassion for our hurting neighbors, whoever they may be and whatever the color of their skin is. Now listen, I don't want to stand up here before you today and act like I've got like our 10-step action plan to ending racism and injustice in America. I, I don't have that. And honestly, I don't believe that's my assignment from God. I believe my assignment from God is to pastor you. But to pastor you, I do believe that we see a few things from the Samaritan here in this parable that I actually believe can help us move in that direction. And I want to share, with, share them with you today. The first is that loving our neighbor means that we are a people who move towards the pain. Loving our neighbor means that we move towards the pain. The thing that set the Samaritan's response apart from the priest and the Levite is that while the priest and the Levite crossed to the other side of the road, the Samaritan moved towards the hurting man. What's it say? He had compassion and what? Verse 34, and he went to him. It would have been so easy for him to just keep walking by, right? Like arguably even easier for the priest or the Levi, even easier than them. I mean, some would even argue that this man had much more of a reason to kick this hurt man while he was down instead of go over to help him. But that's not what he does. He moves towards him. He moves towards the man's pain. He moves towards the problem. He doesn't shy away, but he goes to investigate and to figure out how he can help. And in order to love our neighbor, what we must understand is we have to do the same. I wanna talk about what this means in a couple of different ways though. Because when it comes to compassion and moving towards the pain, there is a part of that that means we lament what has happened or as the scriptures say elsewhere, that we mourn with those who mourn. 
This is part of what it looks like for us to move towards another's pain. Moving towards pain is gonna mean possessing a willingness to sit with others in their pain. A willingness to sit alongside someone and cry with them and weep with them and seek to understand where they're coming from. And here's, here's why I bring that up. I bring that up because right now in this moment, there is a lot of what I would call frenetic energy out there to fix something or to do something. Like everyone wants to absolve themselves of the sin of racism. That's part of why there are so many voices out there telling you what you should do and what you should not do. And there's certainly a place for that. I don't wanna, I don't wanna make it sound like there's not a place for that because there is a place for that. But if we're going to move forward, we first have to be willing to sit down and mourn the past. We've gotta acknowledge that there is a real problem and there has been a real problem a real problem with real pain that has affected real people. A problem, in fact, that the church at times has even contributed to. You gotta know that if white Christians had been faithful to Jesus on this issue, we wouldn't even be remotely where we're at right now. And we just have to know that. And we have to own that. And we just need to grieve that as a group, we've kind of blown it. We've blown it. And I know there's some outliers there, but generally speaking, we have been the ones who have passed by on the other side of the road because it doesn't really seem to affect us. And so for some of us, what this is gonna mean is that lamenting is going to require learning. Lamenting is gonna require learning because what helps us move towards love is understanding the past, our history, and someone else's experience. We need the humility to listen to perspectives that may differ from our own the humility to admit things that we didn't see or admit things that we didn't want to see or that we chose not to see. We need to gain insight from people you don't normally read to understand and gain perspective. We need to listen to stories, to the stories of our black and brown brothers and sisters to understand their experience, to understand their pain and empathize with the problem. For the record, we've posted a ton of these on our website. I commend those to you. But one I would encourage you to start with if you haven't read it already is Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. But the point is, is that like the Samaritan, we need a willingness to examine what is easier to ignore. We need a willingness to examine what is easier to ignore. That's where it starts. But that's not where it stops. The Samaritan didn't stop by merely moving towards the man. He also took action to help the man. It says he went to him and bound up his wounds. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever you spend, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The Samaritan didn't just go over and see, see the man and try to understand his pain. He then took responsibility to do what he could to care for him. He didn't just go over there to see what the problem was, but then he stepped in to provide something of a solution. You know, we did a whole series on this stuff a few years ago, and the way we said it then was that loving our neighbor means doing good deeds according to our ability. Or to say it a different way, to do what you can with what you got. Loving our neighbor means doing what we can with what we've got, taking action, pursuing justice and mercy as you have the ability to do. The Samaritan did not view the hurt man as somebody else's problem. 
someone more closely connected to him, maybe a family member or a fellow Jew. This man saw this injustice as his issue to deal with. And in the same way, the plight of our black brothers and sisters isn't somebody else's issue. It is our issue. And love takes action because love is an action. Like 1 John 3, 18 says, let us love not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. When it comes to the moment in front of us, I believe we do well to remember the words of theologian Don Carson when he says, sometimes disease can be knocked out. Sometimes sex traffic can be considerably reduced. Sometimes slavery can be abolished in a region. Sometimes more equitable laws can foster justice and reduce corruption. In these and countless other ways, cultural change is possible. More importantly, doing good to the city, doing good to all people, even if we have a special responsibility to the household of faith, is a part of our responsibility as God's redeemed people. As God's people who display God's glory, we have a responsibility to act. This crisis presents the opportunity for the church to demonstrate this is who we really are. Or perhaps more clearly, this is who God really is. I'll say it even more directly. For the church, the treatment of fellow image bearers of God is not a partisan political issue. It is a righteousness of God issue. One that we are called to step in into. One that if this parable tells us anything is that if God's people won't do it, he will raise up someone who will. And if we shirk the responsibility to enter into the risks and dangers of breaking these barriers, if we place our own well-being and self-interest at the top of our priority list, if we hide behind the notion of minding our own business, then we are more like the priest and Levite than we are the Samaritan. The Samaritan did something. He acted, and we are called to the same. Now, we won't be able to do everything. And we just gotta know that. We won't be able to do everything. The Samaritan didn't even do everything. Like the Samaritan could have like rallied up the town council and said, hey guys, we gotta get some lights on this road. Let's figure out how to make it so these folks can't hide in the dark and jump people anymore. Like he could have done that, but he, he didn't. Instead, he did what he could with what he had. He had oil, wine, an animal, and some money. And he used those things sacrificially to help the man on the side of the road. So I learned a few weeks ago that in response to the recent events, uh, four moms in a life group at our Lexington Church, they began a book club. They began a book club with their third grade daughters. And they read a, little, a book about a little girl in the civil rights era and discussed it together, including in what ways the issues that were presented to this little girl still exist today. And they talked about it, talked about the ways that they see it. Then they got together to watch the movie about the book and talk some more. And listen, these mothers, by all, for all practical intents and purposes, cannot, quote unquote, change the world the way we're typically prone to think about it. And they aren't supposed to. In fact, right now, they're mostly stuck at home just trying to figure out how to do this whole school thing now that we have to have all this pandemic preparation. But the reality of it is, is they are, in fact, changing the world. They are helping their children see the issues at hand and teaching them how to respond to them as followers of Jesus. 
And that is just one small but beautiful example of what it means to do what you can with what you got. These moms had time with their daughters to read, and that's what they did. And what we've got to understand is that we all have something. Each and every one of us has something. When it comes to racism and injustice in our world, we all have some way that we can act to dismantle it. We all have leverage somewhere, whether that be politically or in our places of business, in our families or our relationships with other people, wherever. You have something. You do. But hear me on this. 400 plus years of racialization and injustice are not gonna be undone with one sermon. And they're not gonna be undone with a few isolated acts of kindness. The road ahead for us, church, is still a long one. One that is gonna require endurance and commitment and creativity. And just like the Samaritan commits himself to this man for more than a day, loving our neighbor will mean the same for us. Commitment to keep looking for opportunities to love, even when the rest of the world has seemed to move on. There's a reason why we're preaching this sermon now and not six weeks ago. Because we're gonna have to keep talking about this, even when it feels like everybody else has moved on from it. And listen, if you need a starting place, I'll give you some ideas that you might consider. I'm not telling you you have to do these things, but these are just options. You might consider supporting and partnering with organizations dedicated to biblical justice and reconciliation. For my seat on the bus, organizations are the best way to cultivate devotion and endurance. Because institutions and organizations can keep momentum and do what individuals cannot do due to time constraints and depleting energy and distraction. Because at some point, we have to think about something else, right? At some point, we have to think about other things like paying the bills and getting the kids to school and et cetera. And organizations, what they can do is they can keep the focus while we have to be preoccupied. A few I'm personally fond of are the Equal Justice Institute, led by Brian Stevenson, the Christian Community Development Association, which is an organization that pursues holistic community transformation through churches, and Be the Bridge, an organization dedicated to pursuing racial unity in light of the gospel. You might consider letting these organizations be a place that you start. Another thing you might consider would be voting in local elections. We talk so much about national politics that we tend to forget that so much of this stuff, especially regarding policing and criminal justice issues, that most of that happens on the local level. You might consider taking a more vested interest in who your sheriff is. What type of policies regarding policing and criminal justice do they hold? You might learn about your solicitor. How do they prosecute cases? Whom do they choose to prosecute? And you might start voting in ways that don't just look out for your own self-interest, but for the interest of your neighbor. The third thing you might consider would be consider giving your time, energy, and resources to support churches and serving our city. You see, historically, churches have been pillars in low-income and African-American communities. They've provided much-needed resources like food and educational programs, and we have the opportunity to bring flourishing and long-term change to these communities by strengthening and supporting these churches. To be clear, this is why we planted our Two Notch Church. This is why our Two Notch Church exists, and this is why we partner with many of the Serve the City partners that we do, like Ezekiel Ministries, to pursue love, justice, and mercy for our neighbor. 
And hear me, a portion of every dime given to our church goes to help our two-notch church and our serve the city efforts. And the reality of it is, is we must continue to come alongside them and others to support the work that they are doing in our city. And those are just a few ideas, just a few ideas to get your brain going. But at this point, and this, and this is really the last thing that I wanna say and leave you with, I think, I think we need to be reminded of what Jesus is really exposing to the lawyer in this parable. The lawyer wanted to justify himself. He wanted to justify himself. He wanted to make the command manageable. But Jesus puts him in this spot where he can really only come to the conclusion that this is not a command that he is capable to keep on his own. The envelope that Jesus is pushing is, what if your only hope was to get ministry from someone who did not owe you any help, but who actually maybe owed you the opposite? What if your only hope was to get free grace from someone who had every justification based on your relationship to him to trample you? You see, the primary thing that Jesus wanted this lawyer to understand was that it's not just that he is called to be like the Good Samaritan, but in truth, he needs a Good Samaritan. That he is the needy man, that he could not keep God's law, that he could not do enough to be righteous on his own. He is the needy man. He is the one who needs the mercy. And the truth is, friends, that you and I are in the exact same position. The same is true for us. And when Jesus came into our dangerous world, he came down our road and he found us self-proclaimed enemies, bruised and broken by our sin, and he had compassion. He bound up our wounds. He carried us on his shoulders. He paid our debt, and he brought healing to our broken soul. He saved us not merely at the risk of his own life, as the Samaritan did, but at the cost of it. He saved us at the cost of his life. You see, Jesus is our great Samaritan. He is our great Samaritan. And the gift of the great Samaritan, the gospel, is what supports every amount of good deed done according to our ability. It shapes everything. His sacrificial love shapes our minds and imagination so that we can see this is how Jesus sacrificed for me. So now I can figure out how do I, how can I sacrifice for others? How can my love reflect his love? His grace undercuts our pride, brings us to the space where we can admit where we've been blind, where we can admit and confess the recesses of racism that exist in our hearts, where we can admit and confess with freedom that we have oftentimes been the one who has passed by on the other side of the road. But it also lifts us up out of our despair and self-loathing because his gift of righteousness frees us from the, uh, from the need to absolve ourselves because Jesus has absolved us. We don't have to live under the tyranny of feeling like we gotta be woke enough because Jesus was woke on our behalf. You can tweet that. As Christians, we don't have to fear stumbling our way through pursuing justice because we have a good Samaritan. Church, we believe in racial reconciliation and justice but we do not believe in salvation through racial reconciliation and justice. We believe in salvation through Jesus, who is our great Samaritan. 
And once we have received this ultimate radical neighbor love of Christ, we can actually begin to be the type of neighbor that Jesus is calling us to be.